Where else will I go? How else will I know him? Friends, that's what we're here to do this weekend. We are here to look through the window of God's word and to catch a glimpse of his beauty, of his glory, of his majesty, of his grandeur, of his goodness, of his all-satisfying self. Like when Bible reading becomes listening to the very words of God and meeting with the very creator of my soul who invites me to call him Father. Where else would I go? What else would I want to do? I am crying out to the Lord that this weekend would be for you and for me an opportunity for the Holy Spirit of God to impress deeply upon our souls a desire and a delight in God's word that we would actually leave here spiritually transformed something supernatural something outside of ourselves reaching down and gripping our very hearts and changing us from this moment on so that we would enjoy and delight in God in a way that we never have before. That's what we're getting after together this weekend. When we come to God's word and when the spirit of God meets us as we come to God's word, he will become increasingly beautiful. He will become increasingly compelling, increasingly desirable, and our souls will become more and more desperate for more and more of him. And that's what we're getting after together this weekend, so that every time we open up our Bibles, we would meet with God. Not that we would encounter God like he's some animal out in the woods, but that we would meet with God, commune with him, relate with him, know him more and more and more every time we open up our Bibles. So uh, we have four sessions uh, that I'm asking the Lord to do a transforming work in our lives through. Uh, Session one, tonight is listen to the story of the Bible. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, session two is going to be ask, then listen, the, uh, the place of prayer in our Bible reading. Session three is going to be look and listen. Pastor Chris is going to come down tomorrow with Jen, uh, and he's going to kind of actually like walk us through a passage and how he would study that passage and how he would come away from that time Uh, knowing the Lord more and understanding more who he is in the Lord. Uh, And we'll kind of do that together. And then session four is listen and obey. Let us not just be hearers of the word only, but doers also. Uh, So that's what we have ahead of us this weekend. That's what we're getting after in these four sessions. One tonight, two tomorrow, one on Sunday morning before we go. As we do that, would you guys pray with me? God, we're glad to be here. We're glad to be together We're glad to have already had an entire hour to open up your word and to listen to you speak to us, to see you reveal yourself to us. And now, God, we ask that you would 
meet with us. Just as you've already been meeting with us, we ask that you would continue to do so and that you would do this work in our souls of actually changing our desires and giving us an insatiable desire for more of you, one that cannot be satisfied. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, So tonight is listen to the story of the Bible. Uh, I was going to bring another video clip, but I was like, two video clips in a row, that's kind of bad form, so we're not going to do that. Uh, But uh, how many of you guys have seen Avengers? How many of you have seen Avengers Endgame? How many of you cried during Avengers Endgame? Stop it. Okay. Uh, I saw, when I was sick in bed earlier this winter, Avengers Infinity. Is it Infinity War? Wars? Is there one war? Are there many wars? Some of you guys are like, come on, man. Uh, Okay, I watched Infinity War, and I thought... My son says Infindian, all right? So I'm doing better than he is, though he's five. Uh, I watched Infinity War, and, and after I got done watching it, I thought that was the last movie in the Avengers series. Is anyone going to be sad if I ruin the movie for you? Infinity War, you're all okay? Colby, come on. Come on, Colby. Okay. Uh, so, so at the end, like the bad dude wins, right? And he sits down and it's like this really dramatic scene or whatever. I thought that was the end of the whole thing. And so that was the scene that I was going to put up here. And I thought that you guys would like be angry and it would just not do good things for your soul if you saw all of that. So I decided not to. But think about this. Um, if you, like me, just like knew nothing about Avengers in all 22 movies. 22? Yeah. Look at how popular culture I am, right? <laughs> I just made that into a noun, an adjective. I don't know. Uh, all 22 movies, I've seen maybe two or three of them. So I like don't understand how all of the pieces fit together. And I was going to show that last scene and say, what if that's like the only scene that you ever saw? So try and erase your minds from the countless hours that you wasted. I mean, spent watching different Avengers movies. Okay. Sick. <laughs> Try and erase all those from your mind and just like that minute and a half clip where like Thanos, 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 I should stop trying, shouldn't I? Okay, let's just move to a different topic Lincoln suggests, that's good. Okay, Thanos, okay, Thanos, Uh, just imagine him, the the, the purpley wrinkle guy, uh, and he sits down and he's looking out over the countryside and then there's like that weird green girl that's talking to him and like there's dust floating in the air and then all of a sudden like the movie ends, right? I mean, if that's the only scene that you ever saw, it would make no sense. You're like, why is this purple wrinkly guy sitting here looking at the sunset? That was kind of cool that that little green girl showed up, right? Like, you would have no context for what in the world was going on, why that's such like a dramatic scene, why that would be such a horrible ending to the whole thing. Like, you would have no idea of any of that. You would just be like, that was weird. Uh, That's sometimes what we experience when we read our Bibles. If we don't have an understanding of the whole story, if we don't know what happens in all 66 books, we come across a part and we're like, That just got weird. I don't understand what's happening here. I don't understand why it had to happen that way. This doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, That's why we're starting this retreat of listening to God speak to us in his word with listening to the story of the Bible, understanding like the 30,000 foot view of what's going on in the Bible, what the story is. If we were just to trace the plot, 
from Genesis to Revelation of what has God revealed to us about redemptive history, about his actions in the world throughout history, from creation to recreation. So that's how we're beginning our time together this evening. We're going to be listening to the story of the Bible, and it begins like this. This is kind of the overarching sentence of, if you could just kind of boil down the entire Bible into one sentence, uh, this would be it right here. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant in Christ for his glory. I'll say it again. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant in Christ for his glory. This is the story of the Bible, and it's traced through the pages of Genesis to Revelation. It's a story of God, our Father, Almighty Creator, reigning, ruling as the undisputed, uncontested King of everyone, everywhere, for all time. It is the story of God, our Father, Almighty Creator, saving a people unto Himself. It is a story of God, our Father, Almighty Creator, satisfying the people whom He saves. And He does it through covenant, through relationship, in Christ Jesus, for His glory. So I want us to see that story as we begin to kind of unpack it here together. So uh, the story begins like this. In the beginning, God, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Before God ever created, before God ever ruled the world, before anything else, God existed and has existed and will always exist. And he has existed eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, you guys have heard of the Trinity before? Uh, up until probably a month ago, the doctrine of the Trinity, the truth of the Trinity, was a dusty theological truth that I tried to avoid at all costs. And like, I'm a pastor, right? <laughs> uh, but the Lord in his kindness has shown me the glory and the beauty that there is in the truth of the Trinity. The fact that God has always eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means everything for your existence and my existence and our relationship with God. God is creator, but he is not foundationally creator. Because if he was foundationally creator, creation would have to exist in order for God to be God. He's not foundationally the almighty one, the one who reigns and rules over everything. Because if that were the case, then God wouldn't be interested in relationship with me. God wouldn't be interested in loving the people whom he created. He would just be interested that we obey his rules, right? But God foundationally is a father, a father loving his son and the Holy Spirit. And that means that in God's creating, he creates out of love. He is love and he could not not love. And so, in continuing to pour forth life and love, 
God creates. God is the creator. He is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Think about what this means. He not only creates, but he also sustains, that he continues to give us breath that fills our lungs, that he continues to enable all of the involuntary muscle movements of our body to happen so that you and I can continue to exist. He's the one who flung planets whirling into motion, and he is the one who sustains them. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who sees the universe and it fits as though it were in a hand breadth. Uh, God is the one who creates everything. He created you, he created me, and he did it out of love. He's the creator. Then mankind was created in his image. So if you know the story in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then as the days begin to pass by, God begins to create on each day. He creates light and darkness and earth and sky and sea. And then he begins to fill all of the things that he's created. And then on day six, the last day of him creating, he creates mankind. Mankind as the pinnacle, as the chief of his creation. Up until this point, God had created all kinds of really cool things, like platypus. Those are cool, right? I don't know the plural of that. No, it's not. It's platypi. That's amazing. God did that too, okay? Uh, God created platypi and other things like platypi. But in all of these glorious things that he created, None of them was created in the image of God except for mankind. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. We were created to be visible representations of the invisible God. That when we were created, when we came into being, when we came into existence, it was unlike anything else. It was so that you and I would be visible representations of the invisible God. And everything that God made was good. He looked at all of his creation and he said, it's good. It's very good. Uh, I approve of this. I love this. I'm glad for what I have made. Mankind was not only created to be visible representations of the invisible God, but man was also made for perfect fellowship. Perfect fellowship with God and perfect fellowship, perfect relationship with one another. So when God creates mankind, we're created to reflect him, yes, be visible representations of this invisible God, but also to relate with him. Out of his love, he pours forth his creation. And in creating us, his desire is that his creation would love him and delight in him and that he would also love and delight in his creation. Genesis chapter 3, act 2, the fall. Man fell into sin. Man fell into sin. Man a better way of saying it, deliberately chose to love something other than God. 
See, mankind was created out of the overflow of God's love and created to be loved and to love God in return. But what happens with sin is love turns. Sin is a misdirection of love. It's a twisting or a perversion of love. You and I created to love God and instead turning towards other created things and saying, I find those more lovely. I find those more desirable. Not just turning outward towards other created things, but turning inward and saying, I would prefer to love myself rather than love my God. All sin is a turning away from God to be satisfied in something not God. All sin is a turning away from God to find satisfaction in something not God. All sin is a turning away from God to find satisfaction in something, anything, that is not God. So the problem then, friends, is not simply that our outward actions are contrary to God's way. That's a part of the problem, and it's a significant part of the problem. But it goes even deeper than that. The outward action of our sin is a manifestation, a visible representation of the turn that's already occurred in our heart where our love has been misdirected off of God, onto self, off of God, onto anything else. It's a misdirection of love. And so because of this sin, because of this breach of relationship, because the creation was no longer acting in accordance with the way in which it was created, man and the earth, now lived under a curse. This turning away, this decisive moment of turning inward and loving ourselves rather than continuing to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and loving Him, this moment is what brought in all of the spiritual, all of the psychological, all of the social, and all physical decay and breakdown. All of the horror and persecution and everything that you look at around in the world and everything that you yourself have experienced as the world has shown its sinfulness to you and even as you sense and know and understand your sinfulness of your own heart is all because of this moment of misdirected love. And so man and the earth fell under a curse. Man's relationship from God was severed. When we chose to love ourselves, to love something other than God, more than God, our relationship with Him was severed. We became alienated, at war with God. We became enamored with ourselves rather than satisfied in Him. We declare to God that what we want outside of Him is more desirable and more valuable and more beautiful than having him. And how could this not sever relationship with God? Like, think about the relationships that you have in your life. And when somebody looks at you and says straight to your face, you're okay, 
but I would actually prefer to go after this. You're fine, but I would prefer actually to rather than placing my love and affection here with you, I would prefer to place my love and affection somewhere else. It naturally breaks relationship. And this is what happens in man's relationship with God. And so because of this breach in relationship, because of this misdirected love, because of this turning away from God to find satisfaction in something other than God, mankind is banished from God's presence. You see, when God would come down and spend time with his children, he would walk with them in the coolness of the day and they would relate and commune with one another. And what happens is his children would come and they would run to him. But what happens now because of this misdirected love is that instead of running to him, we see Adam and Eve doing what? They run away from him. Rather than coming to him and embracing him, they run from him and hide. Mankind was created naked and unashamed, drawing near to God, and now running from him in shame. Our rejection of God and the sin that strains our souls makes it impossible for us to dwell in the presence of God. And so mankind is banished from the presence of God. Now it's at this point that we have to consider, okay, well, what, I mean, like, God is the creator of everything. If God is supposed to be all-knowing, like, didn't he see this coming? Didn't he know this was happening? Why didn't he change it? Why didn't he make it happen another way? Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. You might want to write this reference down. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. This is what the Lord declares. He says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. God sees the end from the beginning. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight or his knowledge and he directs all things according to his purpose. He sees all of history at one glance and he is sovereign over all of it. Hear this, there has never been anything that's happened in your life that has happened outside of the sovereignty of God. There has nothing that has ever happened in your life that has happened outside of the sovereignty of God. And there will never be anything that comes to pass in your life or in this world that is not according to the sovereign power of God. He reigns and rules over all of it. At first, you think, that makes me have a lot of questions. And then when you think about it a little bit more, it gives you a ton of peace and a ton of hope. Nothing has happened or will happen in your life that is outside of the umbrella of God's sovereignty. He is sovereign over every subatomic particle. He is sovereign over every king of every nation. He is sovereign, uncontested in his rule, over all spiritual beings. God and Satan are not in a cosmic boxing match where sometimes Satan gets in a couple of good jabs and then sometimes God gets in a couple of good jabs. It's not that. It's not that picture. It's God being in complete and total control. His throne has never been moved an inch, and it never will. Everything 
goes according to his plan. And so how does God respond? Well, we begin to see throughout the rest of the Old Testament this story taking place. So far, we're at Genesis chapter 3. We've got a lot of way to go. But it gets faster, I promise. Okay? Um, what, what we see is redemption is promised to a covenant people. You fast forward from Genesis chapter 3. You get to the end of chapter 11. You have the whole story of Noah and the Tower of Babel. And then you get to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God makes a promise. He makes a covenant. He enters into a relationship with a man named Abram. And he says to him, I will bless you. And I will use you to be a blessing to the nations. That through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's this promise with this family that he would establish a family, that he would establish a people that he would keep unto himself as his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth and that through him relationship can be restored because of this family. You fast forward quite a bit and you get to the book of Exodus and so after Abraham, then you have Isaac. After Isaac, then comes Jacob. Jacob really loves kids. He has a lot of them. Uh, one of them is named Joseph. His brothers did not like him at all. They threw him in a pit. Then they sold him into slavery. And then he becomes like the second most powerful person on planet Earth. And in that moment, God moves his people from where they were to exactly where he needed them to be into the land of Egypt. And while they were there, they were brought under captivity and slavery. After Joseph dies and the next Pharaoh comes, he says, this is getting freaky. These people are multiplying like crazy. There's more of them than there are of us. And if they get mad at us, we're going to be wiped out. And so what do, we, what do people do when they get scared and threatened in their own power and their desires and the things that they want? Well, they just oppress people. They just try and hurt other people. They just try and push other people down so that they can keep their life the way that it is. Except it doesn't work when you're doing that against God Almighty. It fails every time. So God raises up Moses to come into Egypt after 400 years of slavery and deliver his people from slavery. Now I'm going to use a really cool word and you're going to want to say it. It's just one of those words. It becomes paradigmatic. You can say it. Go ahead. That was good. Some of you guys were making fun of me for I said infinity. Y'all ought to say paradigmatic a couple more times. All right? Uh, paradigmatic. This becomes paradigmatic. In other words, a pattern or a model for how God continues to work throughout the rest of redemptive history. Think of it. He takes the people that were in bondage and he delivers them through the blood of the Lamb. Right? This is the story of the Exodus. This is your story and my story, follower of Jesus. He takes a people in bondage and captivity to sin, and he delivers us from bondage. He delivers us from slavery. He delivers us from death by the blood of the Lamb. So he brings a people out of captivity and unto himself. And when he brings them out in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9, he says this, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9, after taking this people out of slavery, you are a people holy, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. But it is because the Lord loves you. And it is because he is keeping his covenant, his oath, his promise that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and he has redeemed you. So know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant, who keeps relationship and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So from here, God's people are out of slavery. They begin to go into their own land that God had promised to them. And in this land, they suffer miserably because of their twisted and perverted love, because they turn inward rather than being satisfied in the Lord. In the book of Judges, it says, now everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king. And so the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8 begin to cry out for a king. God, give us a king like the rest of the nations. God was supposed to be their king, yet they're rejecting him as king and saying, we want a king like the nations. And so God gives them their first king, Saul. And Saul fails miserably because he turns his love and affection away from the Lord unto something else, himself. Because he thinks that his wisdom is wiser than the wisdom of God. And so Saul is rejected and God looks for a man after his own heart. He does not see as we see, as man sees, but he looks at the heart and he finds a man whose heart is dependent and desperate for God. He finds a man whose soul can be satisfied in nothing but God and his name is David and through him he establishes another covenant saying that through you, through your family, one is going to come And he'll be a king and he will sit on your throne and he will rule forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so this sets off the rest of the history of the nation of Israel. It's a story of God's people continuing to turn away from the Lord and put their affections and their love somewhere else. And the Lord graciously and continuously and patiently drawing them back and calling them to repentance and saying, I love you, love me in return. And again and again and again, it's demonstrated that we cannot do it on our own. This is the story of the Old Testament. Pursuing after the Lord in our own strength is never enough. And so God's people are banished. Just like Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, God's people are sent away from their land. They're made captive again amongst the nations. And they are devastated, thinking, Will God ever act again? Can God forgive us? Will God redeem? But even in the midst of exile, even being cast out of their land, God faithfully pursues his people. The Old Testament ends with God's people coming back into their land and reestablishing together as a people and yet waiting for the promised hope of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, in the old way that God would relate with his people, it becomes evident that no one could become righteous 
by works of the law, that no one could fulfill all of God's righteous and holy requirements on their own strength. But the Old Testament does not end with judgment. The Old Testament ends with an eye towards hope. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God promises that there's going to be a new covenant, a new way that God relates with his people, where he would enable them to be faithful to him and to love him the way that they ought. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is the covenant, the promise that God makes with his people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, with my people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with my people. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God promises that things are going to change, that it won't always be like this, is what the Old Testament people experienced, that a relationship was going to be different for God's people in the future. And so the Old Testament closes demanding a sequel. How will God solve this problem that was created in Genesis chapter three, where we revolted against him? Will he pour out wrath because of his justice? Or will he draw us in because of his love and forgive us? How can God respond? Act three, redemption. This is the New Testament. The New Testament is the climax of one grand story that begins in the Old Testament. The New Testament begins with the Gospels, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the story of God taking on human flesh, God the Son, becoming what he was not so that he might redeem us. We learn who Jesus is, why Jesus had to come, and how Jesus redeemed us. God sent Jesus as our representative, fully God, fully man, and he comes and stands in our place as our representative. In Romans chapter 5, perhaps you've read it. Get it? Uh, Romans chapter 5. It says, The first Adam, through one man, through one act of sin, condemnation was brought upon the whole world. But through the last Adam, through one man and his one act of righteousness, he brings justification and life. Jesus lived a perfect life, completely sinless. And then he died. He lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death. And then he rose from the dead. Don't breeze past that, Christian. Don't breeze past 
the fact that I just said that a God-man died and came back to life again. And in coming back to life again, demonstrated that his payment for sin was accepted. And that for anyone who says, Jesus, I trust you and you only to pay for my sin. I recognize that I cannot do it on my own. My only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I belong to you. For anyone who would confess that, for anyone who would believe that, for anyone who would embrace that truth, they too might have life. That you go from being eternally separated and completely alienated and at war with God to in that moment of turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus, you become a son or a daughter of God. And you can call God Father. And that relationship that he started in Genesis 1 when he created, a relationship that was intended for mutual love, can again begin where not only God loving you, but we love because he loved us first. We are redeemed through Christ's birth, his death, and his resurrection. This Jesus, this one that we get really, really cranked up about and sing a whole lot about, he is the second Adam. He is the true seed of a woman promised in Genesis chapter 3. He is Abraham's offspring, the one that was given the promise back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that through you and your family, one would come who would bless the nations. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who ushered in the new covenant, the Jeremiah 31 promise that God would forgive us of our iniquities and he wouldn't treat us according to our sins. He fulfills all that man could not fulfill in their own strength. He lives the perfect life that man was meant to live. He is the son of David that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He is the Isaiah chapter 53 suffering servant. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is, as John says when he sees him, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. In Christ, sin is fully punished and salvation is freely offered. In Christ, sin is fully punished and salvation is freely offered. The sin bearer becomes the sin conqueror. And so the rest of the New Testament then, until the book of Revelation, is about God's people proclaiming this truth, proclaiming this gospel, proclaiming this story, and inviting others into the loving relationship that we have found in Christ. It is about God's people trusting in him and knowing him and enjoying him and being so satisfied in him that they cannot help but speak of what they love. I mean, think about it. You love something in life, you talk about it a lot. And this is our lives in Christ as we grow to love him more and more and be more and more satisfied in him. We cannot help but speak and proclaim and invite others to find their heart satisfaction in the one in whom we have found it. 
This brings us to the book of Revelation. Revelation is the consummation. It's the ending. It's the bringing together of all things so that they might arrive at their appropriate end. God and the Lamb will consummate, will complete, will finish, will establish their kingdom for their glory. And all of the decay and horror and death and sadness and awfulness that we experience, that we see, and that we participate in, in this world, will disappear. God will establish justice and peace. And he will do this by saving his people and by judging his enemies. And then his glory will cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus will return. That's always a good place to say amen, by the way. Jesus will return. Uh, he's coming again. And he will reign forever. All right, good, all right. I don't know if you need to keep doing that. Uh, he will return and he will reign forever. Man will be in perfect fellowship with God forever. We will have this relationship with God, one that we experience in part now. We see dimly as though in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Right now we experience it only in portion. Then we will experience relationship with God in its fullness God will banish sin forever. And not just the sin out there, brothers and sisters, but God will banish the sin right here. God will rid me of the sin that keeps me from seeing his beauty. He will destroy the sin in my heart that keeps me from embracing his glory. He will banish the sin in my soul that stops me from loving him as I ought. Life and relationships will be as God intended forever. There will never be a time where we will experience the hurt and the sadness and the trial and the tribulation that we experience now. And God will reign for infindian. See this, see this, I have it on here, it might be small, but this is what happens in Genesis to Revelation and then I'm done, okay? In Genesis, sinful people are scattered. In Revelation, God's people unite to sing his praises. Genesis, we see the marriage of Adam and Eve. In Revelation, we see the marriage of the last Adam, Jesus, to his bride, the church. Genesis, God abandoned, God was abandoned by sinful people. Revelation, God's people are made ready for God. In Genesis, there's the exclusion, there's the banishing from Eden. Revelation, there's an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Satan introduces sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 20, Satan and sin are judged. In Genesis 3, the serpent deceives humanity. In Revelation chapter 20, the ancient serpent is bound to keep him from deceiving the nations. Genesis 2, God gives dominion to his people over the earth. In Revelation, God's people will reign with him forever. Written Genesis, people rebel against the true God and it results in physical and spiritual death. But then God's people risk death to worship the true God 
and thus experience life. Genesis, sinful people are sent away from life. In Revelation, God's people have their names written in the book of life. In Genesis, death enters the world. In Revelation, death is put to death. In Genesis, God creates the first heaven and the earth, eventually cursed by sin. In Revelation, God creates a new heaven and a new earth where sin is nowhere to be found. In Genesis, sin brings pain and tears. In Revelation, God comforts his people and removes crying and pain. In Genesis, sinful people are banished from the presence of God. In Revelation, God lives amongst his people. Creation begins to grow old and die, but then all things are made new. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1.1, Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Genesis, sin enters the world. In Revelation, sin is banished from God's city. In Genesis, sinful people are sent away from the garden. In Revelation, there's a new heaven and earth, which includes a new garden. In Genesis, sinful people refuse to serve and obey God. In Revelation, God's people serve him for eternity. In Genesis, sinful people are ashamed in God's presence. And in Revelation, God's people will see his face. Father, we long for when we will see your face. God, we long for when we will enter into your presence and there we will experience fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. God, we thank you for how your sovereign and mighty hand has been working throughout redemptive history to show yourself great and to satisfy our souls. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that this will have helped their souls to soar and to rejoice in the work that you have done. And God, I pray that this would help us as we come to your word, understand how the part that we're looking at fits into the whole and how all of it is leading towards a time where you will bring infinite and forever glory to your matchless name and where our souls will forever be satisfied. God, continue to teach us, continue to speak to us, continue to reveal yourself to us through your word. God, loving us, having relationship with us, and continuing to satisfy us in that relationship is who you are, and we love you for it. In Christ's name, amen.